All right, welcome to a special edition of the Cavish Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavish Ships podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is the largest producer of undersea unmanned vehicles, making transoceanic missions possible. HII delivering hard stuff done right. This week, we're going to focus on naval history. The importance of remembering not just what happened in the past, but how and why and what lessons were learned. Even more, are the lessons historians initially took from a particular battle, for example, still the same lessons people remember today? With us to work through a lot of this are two of our favorite people, former naval officers, great thinkers and analysts, and writers on naval affairs, Paul Giara and Jerry Roncolato. Welcome back to the podcast, Paul and Jerry. Thanks, Chris. Good to be yep. here. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate the invite. So we, uh, you know, we 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 get together fairly fairly uh, routinely, and we often talk about history and the lessons that are learned. We've just come through this time of year um, the annual Battle of Midway observances by the U.S. Navy. Um, there are actually a number of of key naval historical events that just passed. Um, the Canadians just just did the uh, Battle of the Atlantic. They're, that's their annual um, observance. Uh, we just passed the anniversary of the Battle of Tsushima, in 1905. This is um, this is uh, something that has really even resonates very much down to today. We just passed the anniversary of the Battle of Jutland, the, probably the most analyzed naval battle in history, the, the, the largest battle of World War One, the largest battleship battle ever ever. Um, a lot of these lessons, like, like I said, appreciations of these things have come and gone. Uh, you know, Jutland used to hear a whole lot more about it. You don't hear as much today. Um, Tsushima, I don't know, but for, for, for those of you who might not be totally familiar with that, this is when a, uh, a newly minted Asian naval power uh, with a Navy that really did not exist at all, maybe 50 years before. Uh, met a, uh, an est- a larger, far more established, but decaying European naval power at sea and decisively defeated them, altering the balance of power, not just in the, uh, in the Pacific, but around the world as well. Uh, and, the, and that's a lesson that reverberates certainly in Japan and Russia down to today, even if we don't think about it too much here. Um, so I'd like to start off with, uh, with Paul. Um, You've given a lot of thought to how history is taught in the in the Naval Academy, and and the awareness of uh, of, of history around the fleet. Do you think people really are? Uh, is, is, is today's Navy a living embodiment, carrying around the naval history of the past two hundred plus years of the U.S. Navy? Are they are they are they ready? Are they, have they have they assimilated the lessons of the past? Are they ready to move out? That's a compl- That's an actually a very complicated question because there's an historiography to the history itself. In other words, interpretations of the history change. And then there's the whether or not any lessons were learned in the first place and how and whether those lessons themselves changed over time. So um, the, the history of the US Navy is in many ways a history of reputation. So from the very earliest days, even 
before the revolution, American seamen were making their mark. Um, in a letter to Lafayette, then General Washington was extolling, extolling the um, importance of the Navy for the revolutionary campaigns that were then underway. And of course, he apparently was anticipating what was going to happen at the Battle of Virginia Capes. Um, so it was this reputational experience that became its history. That looms very large because reputations to be effective have two aspects. One is external and one is internal. The internal aspect is the one that I'm most concerned with. I care about what the Russians and the Chinese think about the US Navy, but I also care even more because it's much more operational uh, and, and tactile what the US Navy thinks and what it thinks its reputation is. When we see celebrations of the Battle of Midway, you see the dichotomy between the interpretations of the battle, which are on the one hand luck and the great uh, sweeps of history, as opposed to individuals. My sense of that battle and my sense of the Navy's reputation is that in that battle, the Navy had been building on its reputation very uh, it, in, a, in a very introspective way. And that every man who fought in that battle on our side was ready to do whatever it took. And that they had some uh, considerable idea of what that was gonna take because they knew their own history. And their history wasn't some distant thing because they were living it because it was the dealing with the sea dealing with independent operations, dealing with being cut off from any kind of command or, or logistical support and having to make do. Um, so that's living history. What I'm afraid of is that the, that, that has faded and that the understanding of what happened in Mid at Midway in the first place is gone. So uh, a perfect example of that is the interpretation, as I take it, of the, of the majority who have read Trent Hone's book, Learning War, where they think, okay, the, the battle, the attack on Pearl Harbor occurred and now we have to get ready. But Trent really is telling a story about the buildup of that whole uh, war winning ethos, which was a carryover from the earlier character of American seamanship and, and, uh, and sailors, naval sailors. Uh, which had built up and was already getting ready. And so this misunderstanding of history is, well, we'll just have to get ready when the time comes, as opposed to get ready in advance, because it's that readiness plus that individual pluck and sort of moral determination that in combination wins, as far as I'm concerned. Let's stay on Midway for a little bit. Jerry, you know, you've you, you studied this, you've read tons of books about this, you know about it. Um, do you agree with that? Are, are, are some of the lessons, the real lessons of Midway being lost and, and maybe some of the celebration of the victory? Well, are, are you actually asking, um, has the celebration become the essence of our memory of the battle, right? Rather than the battle itself. In other words, it seems to me uh, uh, there's been a lot of recent really good scholarship on 
the Pacific War and Midway in particular with Marshall and Tully's Shattered Sword and Craig Simmons' uh, Battle of Midway, where he does a great job looking at the Japanese side as well as new stuff on the American side, and John Lundstrom also. Um, <clears throat> the issue isn't <clears throat> the issue is is how this stuff is uh, absorbed within the naval community, the the active duty community, and um, it, it seems to me that many times uh, history, the history that is read is is uh, what I call bumper sticker history. Um, so er everybody's read Last Stand of the Tin Can Sailors or Neptune's Inferno, but both uh, uh, extremely well written written books. But they don't it, they don't take away from it some of the deep deep learning or lessons that are there. Uh, and I think it's a cultural problem we have right now. So at the turn of the last century, 1800s and 1900s, um, and this John Hattendorf has written about this, uh, the U.S. Navy was kind of looking at a whole new role for itself. And, they, and the technology had changed completely since the last time they fought, which was largely the Civil War. I'm discounting the Spanish-American War. And, and so they realized that they didn't they didn't have anything to go on. So they they consciously um, looked to history to inform how they should deal with a, a wholly new concept of naval warfare. Fast forward to today, and I think it's exactly the opposite, that history is read for its pleasure on a Saturday afternoon. It's not, it doesn't form the core of, of, of helping us think through very new and different challenging times. In fact, you could argue that uh, the general consensus within the Navy, and this is a gross simplification, I understand, but the general consensus within the Navy is that that, that history is irrelevant. Uh, it, it, everything's changed too much. We, we can't rely on that history. So I think we've gone uh, kind of the opposite direction than what we did 100 some years ago. Uh, and I, I think that's a dangerous place to be. This is one of the reasons why um, the forthcoming 150th anniversary of the U.S. Naval Institute is so emblematic of this. 150 years ago, the Navy was trying to find its way, and the Naval Institute was the manifestation of that. The unbidden uh, Naval officers getting together to talk about what was coming. Uh, they understood that the world was changing under their keel, and they had to get ready for something that was quite different and they were feeling their way forward. Well, if you think about it, I think that in many ways, the reason that's so important and, and what was on the minds of those officers and what carried forward uh, in particular, not only, but in particular into World War II and in the Cold War was uh, that that string was cut at the end of the Cold War. Mm. And so here we are again, getting ready. Now that's okay. Sometimes circumstances change and you have to get ready. But the issue for an historian 150 years from now is gonna be whether or not that same perspicacity and pluck, if I can reuse the word, in the Naval Service still exists that will enable us to meet those challenges. So we'll see. But the use of history comes in here because history is helping you get ready to get ready. Because if you know what it took in the past, then you'll have some sense of what it's gonna take 
going forward, not only to get ready, but to get ready for what? What are you going to be facing, right? And I, I think in particular, we've really kind of lost sight of that. So uh, if I could go back to your question to me, uh, Chris, uh, do I agree with what Paul said? The answer is yes, I do. I, I have a slightly different uh, twist on, on it. If, you, if we take the case of Trent Hone's book, Learning War, um, the reaction I've, I've heard from senior officers, uh, both active and retired, is often, yep, I read the book and, uh, and uh, we, we still screwed up for the first six months of the Pacific War. So why take all, why, why bother with all the stuff we were doing in the interwar period? And we won eventually because we had too many, we had so many carriers and so on and so forth. And that underscores to me this, this um, misunderstanding and misuse of history in, in today's Navy, because the, the, the real answer is the reason we only screwed up as much as we did in the first six months of the war was because of all the intellectual and exercise and technological preparation that had gone on in the interwar period. Um, what Many people, many officers today, I think, don't realize is that J the Japanese Navy was in incredibly competent, very aggressive, very well trained, and very well armed. And it was not; it was it was a hard. It was going to be a hard fought war, no matter how well we did at the initial stages. What the first six months showed us is our ability as an organization to learn, and that came from. Not, not maybe not so much a study of history, but a study of looking at, you know, what are the fundamentals here? Uh, like uh, shoot first, be aggressive, independent initiative were the three heuristics that Trent identifies. And, and so from the question of looking at today, looking backward, even when you have a superb book like Trent's Learning War, that lesson is not making it into the psyche of the American naval officer. And this is, again, a, a gross simplification. It's not making it into the psyche because the filter that is out there is everything's changed as of, you know, when, when Hiroshima happened and now we have jets and we have cyber and space and all that stuff. So it's just all different. And we're throwing out that kind of historical appreciation that says it's more than just the numbers of ships and the numbers of planes and that's that's a big lesson of world war ii particularly the first two years for us that gets lost because at the end you had you know murders road you lifted the fast carriers and we we just we just sank the japanese and so that's how we're gonna i mean there's so much more to it so it was never never that easy so you you talk about learning history and, and, and naval officers and how they learn and um i want to turn to my to my podcast partner chris cervello all right sonny so you're the you're the you're the youngest guy here, and uh, you're not um, you know you not so that young. <laughs> you're not that young, uh, but you went to the academy in the mid '90s or so. Yeah. Um, and you know you're being taught naval history. Uh, you've had a interesting career. You've been to postgraduate school. Um, you've advised people at the highest levels of the Navy. Um, you've, you've you've seen a lot. You've been a lot. What's your sense of how history is taught? I mean, starting from the academy, you were there. And not everybody, by the way, who goes to the Naval Academy or any of the academies is well-versed in that military history of that service when they walk in. Um, so really, how, how did you, looking back on it now, all, all that you've seen, although you got a little more history to your life, how, did, how has that played out for you, the 
from the academy experience on? I was a humanities major. I studied political science at the Naval Academy, but also, you know, have a bachelor's of, of science. So I had a healthy, uh, you know, dose of engineering as well. Um, I think my my experience was that we received foundational naval history um, more from a cultural standpoint than from a tactical standpoint, right? I mean, what what makes you a naval officer? What makes a good naval officer? What makes a bad naval officer? Times in history where um, the person um, distinguished himself. Uh, at that at that point, it was primarily his self, not not his or herself. Um, I wouldn't say that, other, except in rare occasions and maybe electives, um, did we get taught tactical naval history? Um, that was really the same when I went to uh, postgraduate school. I, I have a um, national security affairs degree in uh, in postgraduate school, and and certainly we learned naval history as part of um, major campaigns and part of the political decision-making process, uh, that, you know, makes up national security affairs. But I, I would say, you know, as part of the Naval Academy and Naval Postgraduate, it was mostly cultural and mostly political, um, history in terms of my experience with it as a, as an officer, was really at the um, discretion of the wardroom, right? If you had a commanding officer, if you had a wardroom that was very much interested in history, uh, you tended to, you know, talk more about it and learn more about it. Um, and then as I became a more seasoned public affairs officer, um, it was at the discretion of the boss that I had, whether or not he or she was really into history and and to degree, you know, how much they wanted to make that a part of their particular uh, leadership ethos or leadership style. Broadly, I would say that um, history was sprinkled into speeches more for color than for real learning uh, opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I mean, you, you know, I mean, that just was the practicality of it. I, I'm not sure that uh, it was really something that guided too many of uh, the people that I worked for. And that's not to say that they didn't have a good grasp of history. I, I worked for Admiral John Richardson, who did have a very good grasp and was very much appreciative of it. Same with Bill Moran. Um, but I wouldn't say uh, may, maybe Moran a little bit more because he was the chief of naval personnel and really looked back at different chiefs of naval personnel to learn from what they dealt with. Um, but I would say that was more unique to him than it was the, the naval culture. I'll, I'll take a breath there and let Jerry and Paul respond to that. Paul, you've had some some pretty uh, strong opinions about how it's taught at the academy these days. Well, I didn't go to the academy, so I can't I can't comment on that. Uh, but related to your question, not everybody can study history. Not everybody certainly is an historian. Uh, but there have to be enough people around who appreciate these nuances and their nuances with incredible consequences. So um, let me let me give you an example of in my own life and thinking how that works. Uh, I've been reading military history, not exclusively naval history, for almost 65 years. And I can tell you I can't tell you the first book I read about this, but I think it was 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, but it was a long time ago. But I can tell you the first moment I first read military history critically 
because up until the summer of, I think it was 78, when I was in the library at Diego Garcia on a P3 detachment, I was reading Clay Blair's uh, Silent Victory about the submarine war in the Pacific. And it was the first history that I had read that was something other than we won and came home for the victory parade. And, and that book in particular, but many others, is, was notable for talking about all the problems that the submarine force had and had to overcome uh, in order to get to where we end up. So the reason I'm mentioning this is because the, in particular the initial, but then on in stride education has to wake up something in the recipient who then says, oh, oh, I see that's, so, oh, there's a critical aspect. You can be critical about this stuff. And I want to know more about mm -hmm. that. And so in my own experience, I just wanted to know more and more and more. And, uh, um, and now I, Jerry knows this and you guys know this, I use history as much as I can uh, in my work and in my thinking, because there's so many lessons. But so how do you, how do you sort of, uh, how do you prime that pump so that the history that's out there can make a difference to the, your thinking and then your subsequent planning and your commanding and your following? So one of the things that stuck with me that I, I had to develop uh, as you, know, you start, you, re you read this stuff when you're young, um, which is all, it's all the action stuff. This happened, that happened, right. this battle was fought. This, and you, you, know, you get older, um, you start reading different aspects and higher strategy, for example, at some point, just get really into you know, grand strategy of all what was really happening. And then, then you branch off into different aspects that, that made this stuff work. How did this happen? How they build all these ships, how they develop all these tactics. Um, in college, I, had a, I did not go to the Naval Academy. I went to the University of Maryland way back in the last century. I had a, a professor of history, a guy named Gordon Prang. And Gordon Prang um, wrote a book on, on Pearl Harbor at dawn we slept. He had uh, one of his goals, like the, the ultimate um, book on Pearl Harbor. I also had a big book on Midway. Um, Gordon was a, he was a fascinating uh, professor. Um, he had lived I'm, I'm going to digress just a little bit because it was the, the point of this is that it was living history. And he was, he was an Iowa kid of German. His family was German. Um, he was in Berlin in the late thirties as a graduate student. Um, and he told his lectures were him strutting up and down, essentially speaking in the first person all the time about, I was in Berlin. I went to the Reichstag. I listened to, to Hitler. This is what people were saying on the, uh, on the streets, all this stuff. Of course, uh, he went and he went back to the States. We got into the war. He was dying to go back to Germany. He wanted to be a German analyst. Um, they said, you know, you can do foreign languages. We don't want you to do German. We want you to do you um, uh, Japanese. We don't have enough people who do Japanese. We're going to send you off. No, I don't want to do Japanese. He, he fought it. They, they sent him off. Um, when we when, when the Japanese surrendered, we went into Japan. He was the lead historian on General MacArthur's staff. So now he gets to come into Japan. He can do anything he wants. And he did. And but he also began interviewing people. And over the years in all theaters, just about anybody who was of any significance who lived through World War II 
Gordon Prang interviewed. He talked to him. And he, he, had, he had the knack of picking up languages and he could speak, he could speak a smattering of any language you could talk. So a lot of his languages were, were in, foreign, uh, in, 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 in foreign languages, half it with a severe Iowa twang that he, that, he, that he never could overcome. But he knew all these people. He met them. And it was, it was endlessly fascinating to listen to him talk about, uh, you know, they didn't know what they were doing is what I'm trying to get to. They were, these were people living day to day. They didn't know what was going to happen tomorrow. When we read history, especially when you're young, it's like this happened, then that happened, then that happened, then this happened. There's a sequence, there's a dates. Of course, it was all going to happen. Well, here's so-and-so, here's a picture of so-and-so just five days before this was going to happen. Oh, wow, that's really cool. Well, the person in the picture had absolutely no idea what was going to happen in five days. And these are people dealing with moving events in ways that even they are unable to predict. They don't know if they're going to live, they don't know if they're going to die, they don't know if the people that they're with are going to live or die. Is this going to work? Is it not going to work? The point is, these are, this is all very human. And Prang helped I mean, really, for me, one of my big takeaways was, was that these are people dealing with real events. And as I've worked through my professional life and news and history, um, I've met tons of people that, uh, you know, you, you probably have heard their names, but nobody really knows what's going to happen tomorrow. They go to bed at night going, I have no idea what, what I'm going to do at this meeting tomorrow morning. And that, that aspect of history that it's, it, it is fungible. It moves. It didn't have to happen this way. It could have turned out differently. It could have differently for a thousand factors, including personalities, is something that is really important. And I don't know that people appreciate that aspect, that, that, that living human element of history. Like, I, yeah. I think that gets, that gets buried very quickly in the, the determinism that is history. Um, what what I do think is recent scholarship, again, back to the Pacific War, uh, the two books by Trent Hone, uh, Learning War, and now his uh, uh, Mastering the Art of Command about Nimitz, and Craig Simmons' book on Nimitz, John Lundstrom on, on Fletcher. All, these books put you in the seat of the person at the time with the unknowns and uncertainties that they're facing. So in particular with Nimitz, you know, he pretty much had to invent how we were going to do this war. Uh, the whole, the whole, how do you keep, he was under unremitting pressure from, uh, from King and Leahy to go faster in the Pacific. And, and he, he struggled mightily to figure out how to do that. And they gradually learned a lot of different things, not the least of which was, you know, mobile logistics and forward logistics repair that really hadn't been conceptualized in that way before the war so they invented a lot of this stuff and that that is often lost when you when it, when you're thinking retroactively about history um so i i think i think that's that's i was ernest may and it, it wrote a couple books regarding the uses of history that i think are are, are worthwhile still because you can I mean, you can look at history, and if you look at what I call the bumper sticker type of history, you can get completely wrong lessons. Like, you can't win a battle unless you have material superiority. Wrong answer. Okay. And 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 this goes to where I think I'm going to differ with with uh, where, not, not with you guys substantively, but with where the, the conversation has been going. And I think 
there's there's another role of history that is under appreciated uh, today, if 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 it's ever truly appreciated, and that is the use of history at the operational and tactical level to prepare oneself intellectually for war. And when, when you have a long period of peace, and the British had this problem between largely between Trafalgar and Jutland, and we have this problem now, when you have a long period of peace, the, the elements, the, the, the realities of war tend to get get bleached out of your understanding of what your profession is. Um, Andrew Gordon, who wrote Rules of the Game about Jutland, did a magnificent job of talking about peacetime mentality. And there's, it's not a bad thing. You, you need efficiencies in peacetime. You need, to, you need to have efficient expenditure of, of scarce resources, and you need to push technology and so on and so forth. But what gets left out, if you don't, if you don't look at history right, is the idea that Okay, you can have all the technology in the world, but chance still has a play. Individual initiative is still essential because there's still this fog of war, the friction, the uncertainty, the exhaustion. Those things, you know, everybody, anybody that's watched a World War II movie sees guys get tired, guys get killed. Okay, great. But you have to understand that your, your whole organization, your doctrine, the way you approach everything you do is at the end conditioned by this very human piece of warfare. The technology is important. There's no doubt about it. But the human element is still what it was back at Thermopylae. And so those issues get drowned out in a peacetime, uh, peacetime Navy because you don't have that experience. So when, I, go ahead. No, I, I mean, I, I don't mean to interrupt, Jerry. I, I guess the, the question I have is, though, how do you do this in, I mean, you, you mentioned bumper sticker history. I mean, we, we are now the bumper sticker, you know, generation or in the bumper yeah. sticker world. Yeah. And as a yeah. communicator, I, I struggle with this, right? I mean, I, I sat in many a meeting over a, a, a two decade career and the, those that had a very strong sense of both uh, strategic and operational and tactical history were clearly the smartest people in the room. But as an organization, I'm not sure how much we valued their appreciation of history uh, other than at a bumper sticker level. Yeah. And so I, I am I'm struck with um, how, how do you get an organization to fully appreciate and fully take advantage of all the things that you know, people credit um, for understanding hi history over, right? So, so, I mean, if you were to, if you were to, last point, and then I'll turn it back. If you were to, you know, poll everybody in the Navy, you know, I'm sure 90% or higher would say that absolutely you should value history and we should learn from the lessons of the past and yada yada yada. But it's just not; it doesn't fit into today's lexicon. So, how how do you make it fit in? So I, that's a that's a, a very good point. Obviously, I the way the way I look at it is not how do you make history relevant. The way I look at it is how do you prepare an organization that's been at peace for generations. How do you prepare that organization mentally and morally for war, real war against a capable opponent? And the answer is you have to you have to. You have to make sure that the tactical and technical proficiency is there, certainly. 
I mean, people have to know their systems and know how to align them, how to operate them. But at the same time, you have they have to understand that the enemy gets a vote. And so, so this is where I use history. So, for example, steaming around on Antietam as, as an ops officer or chief engineer, I can't remember which, uh, one night at Midway, uh, the CEO, Phil Cody, says, boy, it's too bad we didn't prepare a briefing on Midway since it's Midway. And I said, give me a half hour and I'll do it. And so I put together a briefing and what I focused on, and I mean, it, it was it was really superficial history from a historian standpoint, but I focused on the the bombing, the three bombing squadrons. And, and I didn't say, here's, I did say quickly, here's what happened. You know, BB-6 went this long way around, found a destroyer, followed up, got the carrier. So, but the fact that all three squadrons appeared over the carrier at, carriers at the same time and picked different targets was, it was, it, it exemplified chance. And that's what I emphasized was the role of chance in war. And it's that way of teaching, I think, that gets into the minds of, of the junior people. Now, what you're talking about, Chris, you know, if I had ever, if I had ever thrown history out uh, when I was uh, EA to N3 and 5 at a, at a meeting, I, people would have looked at me like I had antlers. Uh, I had, I had one, I had one new admiral tell me that anybody that thought about war fighting in this day and age was an anachronism. That right. was a while back. But, well, but, I mean, as we're taping, I'm looking at pictures from today's uh, Midway 81 ceremony at the Navy Memorial. The Navy Memorial and Navy leadership do a great job. But if you took all the time that it took to rig your your uh, full dress whites, to get on the metro and drive over to the Navy Memorial, to sit there and listen to the speeches and lay the, the wreath. And I'm not saying you shouldn't remember, but if you took all that time and you spent time doing what you just described, it would be a better use of, of, the, of the effort than what we have as an institution have, have turned history into in, yes. in, in the Navy and other services. And, and I mean, it, it seems to me that until you break that cycle, you're we're not going to get to where you and Paul talk about. So so the, there was, if you look at uh, the the uh, the interwar period, they didn't they didn't look at history for the sake of history. I'm sure. I mean, a lot of a lot of the guys at the War College, all all the future flag officers in the war, they they studied Jutland. Was that's all they really had to study from a historic standpoint, and and they took away some of the right lessons from it, like the formation was too big to control, yada yada yada. But if you if if these people were what what they were doing both, and this is the institutional culture at the time. What they were doing at the War College, where they were mostly doing war games, uh, what they were doing in, in the fleet, where they were doing you know unit level and group level exercises, culminating in the fleet problems every year, they were they were they were admired in the operational challenges that naval warfare was undergoing as aviation came online and radar and longer range guns and so on and so forth. And, and what they got out of that were these kind of, not principles, because that that's a risky business to get into, but these kind of common behavioral patterns that they understood that each tactical situation had to be handled on its own merits, not some, not some pre-planned response, not some, you know, shore-based tactics that came down from on high. They had to take each 
of each tactical situation on its merits and and come up with a solution. And even, if that's what you do in, in your interwar training process and education process and culturation process, that allows you to get the, the agility and flexibility you need because when the war starts, things ain't going to go the way you thought they were going to go. So it's what they did for 20 years in the interwar period that got them to that point. Sorry, Chris. So no, we're, literally, no. we're literally in the midpoint of the 81st celebration of the great battle, right? Right. And it's remarkable how history repeats here because um, Gordon was writing about what happened at Jutland, which was more than a century after, uh, after um, Trafalgar. And he, he referred to the state of the Royal Navy as having suffered in the long lee of Trafalgar. In other words, victory disease, right? And so the, the opposite of that is skepticism. Well, maybe things aren't going so well, or what is it about the history that we can reconsider? And so some of us think that we are presently operating in the long lee of Midway. Yeah. And so I wonder how, in how many of these um, celebrations, and heavens knows we need to be celebrating this because there was tremendous bravery to death, bravery to death, right? Um, how, how, what was, what actually happened? And so the historiography, can really trip you up because the history, the, the writing of history of the Battle of Midway has changed over in the ensuing 80 plus years. And, and so at first it was triumphalism and then it was a little bit more critical, uh, but that's not what I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, that's not what was being talked about in the, the laudatory speeches that are being presented as we sit here and discuss this. And so the, the issue is skepticism. History should breed skepticism. This is not gonna turn out the way you think it is. Therefore, what, what should I be skeptical about in advance to, to reduce that surprise quotient, right? And so this is- so so with that thought in mind, and we, we, we're just about out of time here, um, I want to bring it around to all the, all the services have history departments, have history organizations, the director of naval history, director of military history. Um, what's the role for those people besides preserving the records of the past, besides documenting what goes on today, so that becomes a record of the past for future generations. What is, is there an operational role for historians today vis-a-vis -vis the fleet itself when people are planning an operation, when people are, are, are gearing up for even, for even just for major exercise scenarios and trying to figure out how to, how, to, how to lay these things out? Is there a role for historians in that or is it really better left to the people who are operating in today's environment? I'm gonna start with, start with uh, Paul. Well, there, it would seem to me, well, first of all, there is a, literally a role for historians because I think most staffs have one. 
certainly the major staffs in the Naval History and Historical Command uh, deploys uh, their analysts out to record what's happening. So that's important. But the other, the other aspect of this is, yeah, uh, boss, keep in mind the historical antecedents of what's going on now, either in this area or under these circumstances and so on, because a good historian can parcel out those lessons. Now, you know, the, the commander has to be, has to be willing to listen, but I can imagine being in a room where somebody's putting a plan together with no regard to the facts uh, and, and having, in fact, I've done this in my own career, taking my life literally and my, my career in my hands and saying, no, that's, sir, that's actually not right. And so this skepticism, maybe that, because it's sociology, this history business is sociological. And you can track this, you can track the mistakes that people are making in real time, I think. Right, Jerry? I, I, I think if, if we're relying on historians whispering in the ear of a commander in an operational or tactical situation, we've already lost. That's not what the historian needs to be doing. The, the commander, we, we've grown very accustomed to having all the time in the world to make decisions, and that's, that's about to end. And you can't, you can't be debating the historical merits of a, of a given plan of action if you're if you're on the cusp of of a battle so i think the role of historians is to prepare the intellects of those who will go into battle so that they can think through on their own through a lens of history or theory whatever you want to call it and i, and I go back to clausewitz and uh john samita's treatment of Clausewitz. what i mean Clausewitz said he, he's talking about theory he says you, it's not a cookbook to take into battle it's it's a way of studying history, the critical analysis, so that you begin to understand the challenges faced by by past commanders, and you empathize with them, so that when you get into battle, not taking that theory with you, when you get into battle and handle it on its own merits, you can make a sound decision. That's where the historians need to come into play. And right now, that's that. If you look at the Naval Academy, I went there too. Um, and how they're teaching or or postgraduate school or the war colleges, that's not how they're using history. And I think it we're, we're really missing a, a, a key opportunity there. So let, just let me clarify that Jerry and I agree on this. Uh, I was referring to not the eve of battle, but to preparation for the campaigns and so on, where the big mistakes are being made, because once the battle comes, it's not up to the commander anymore. Then it's up to the sergeants and the petty officers. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. We're uh, just about uh, to the end of uh, of this week's podcast, but um, we, you know, as Chris mentioned at the top, uh, this was an opportunity to dive deeper uh, into a discussion topic that many of us have had, uh, whether uh, out at sea or. Uh, on the sidelines of events or, you know, in, in weekly conversations. So your perspective has been great. Uh, we've been talking to Jerry Roncalato and Paul Giara. Gentlemen, again, thanks for joining us. We look forward to having you back very soon. Thanks, guys. Take care, gents. Thanks for having us. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support.
The Cavus Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner and the largest aggregator of U.S. Department of Defense cyber data, HII delivering hard stuff done right. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>